Heavenly Father, this season has been a challenge, Father, and it continues to be so. I lift up those who have been afflicted by this disease, those in our body and those everywhere. Father, the, uh, the trial that it brings to those who suffer is tremendous. The fear of what it might do, the challenge of coping with something so new and different and unknown. We pray, Father, that those who have it would be comforted in the knowledge that your sovereign will will be done in this day and that they know, Father, that uh, you are with them. If they know you by your son, they are comforted in that. They know you will never leave them nor forsake them and that nothing can separate them from your love, not even a disease that might take a life here and there. That, Father, it is nothing compared to the eternity we have with you. Nonetheless, Father, we pray for their recovery. We do not yield to this disease without a fight. We desire to serve you every day we can. As Paul says, Father, to live is Christ, but also to die is gain. And so, Father, whichever way you should take the course of this disease in our lives or in our community, we acknowledge your sovereign and good purpose in it, whether we can see it or not. And Father, we ask that it would be ended soon. We pray that our days would return to joy and freedom and opportunity to gather. We pray, Father, that we can do it safely. Not, Father, because we are afraid of trial, but because, Father, we know the blessing that it offers. We ask, Lord, for that. And Lord, I also ask that the teaching that we do in the meantime would be all the more impactful because of the days in which we live. We would hear it with new ears. We would see it with fresh eyes. We would live it out, Father, with a renewed desire to be your witness. Let today's lesson, Father, further that aim. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, believe it or not, at this stage of our study, we've only reached the halfway point of the Olivet Discourse, which is recorded in Matthew 24 and 25. But already we've learned quite a bit. Jesus outlined the signs and the major events that would announce the destruction of the Jewish temple and the end of the age. He gave us a summary of the events that would take place in the time of tribulation at the very end of this age and what would lead to his second coming and how to recognize it. And then he introduced a special day to us, a day that he calls the coming of the Lord, a day we now call the rapture, as we learned last week. And on that day, Jesus said, the church saints will be received off of the earth resurrected and taken to heaven to be with him. And we've been studying this day now, the rapture, for the past couple of lessons. And I told you as we began this part of the study that we'd look at it in three sections. First, we were going to look at the circumstances that Jesus said would surround this day whenever it came. Secondly, we looked at the manner in which this day would play out. That's what we studied last week. And this week, we need to look at the purpose of this day. What's God trying to do? What's his intention in bringing about something so dramatic, so mysterious? And last week we already learned one of the reasons. I didn't point it out to you, but in one of the texts that we read from Paul last week, we actually got one of the reasons why this day has to exist. On the day of the rapture, we were told by Paul that all the saints in the church will receive new, eternal, glorified, physical bodies, and we will live in these new bodies forever. And that is one of the reasons why the rapture exists. It is the day we receive a new body. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 15, let's jump back there just for a moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, Paul said this, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit 
the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable has put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So Paul explained in that chapter, in the passage I just quoted from, he explained how this rapture moment will work for us in the future. We will see believers who are already dead returning with Jesus to receive their new bodies, and those of us who may still be on the earth in that moment will instantly find our old bodies changed, exchanged, as he said, into a new glorified eternal body. Now, the old body that we have, Paul says, is corrupt. He calls it the corruptible. And the reason is because it is under a sentence of condemnation. It has sin as a part of its very being. And that, Paul says, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's speaking about the moment that we will be raptured, the moment when we leave earth and we enter into the presence of God. And Paul says that journey cannot happen while we still occupy a dying, corrupt, perishable, sinful body. Can't happen. Because if sin were to enter into the presence of a holy and just God on a judgment day, it must be condemned. I mean, justice would require that. So having even just one sin in our nature disqualifies us from entering into the presence of God. I want you to remember that Adam committed just one sin, and that one sin is all it took for him to be put outside the garden and outside the fellowship of God. So, in order for us to be redeemed and to be welcomed back into the presence of God, he must correct for all the sin that we have. So, not only must he pay for the sin that is in our past with a death on the cross, he must also eliminate sin from our nature so that it does not continue in the future. And that correction requires a two-step process, according to Scripture. First, he must remove the sin of our nature found in our spirit, in the eternal part of us that lives forever. And then secondly, he must remove the sin nature that is present in our body, in our flesh. And the Bible says that both have their own source of sin. So he begins with the spirit. In the moment that we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says our spirit is born again. That is, it is literally made new again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then on top of that, the Lord sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of our body to accompany us every day from that point forward until we receive our new body. He lives in us to give us the knowledge of what God expects us to do, the understanding of how to obey, and to give us the strength to crucify our flesh, to put aside the sinful desires that still reside in our body. And that's the second half of the problem. Though our spirit now is sinless, made perfect by our faith in Jesus Christ, it continues to occupy a sinful, corrupt, fleshly body. And that's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that flesh and blood, meaning our sinful body, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That is, the perishable, that thing destined to die, cannot inherit eternal 
imperishable things. And so it is that he must replace this body before we can enter into his presence and occupy the kingdom. We need something equally imperishable, equally eternal. We need to be resurrected. So one reason that we've learned already for why the rapture happens is that it is our resurrection day, the day we get the new body that we will need in order to move forward in the plan of God into eternity. But that just leads us to the next question, really. Why does the Lord conduct this day of resurrection in such a dramatic fashion? Why raise the entire church, not just those who have died, but also those who are still alive? Why make those who have previously died wait for their new body so that they get it when we do, if we're still alive? And why do all of this so secretively? Why have the day be such a mystery, an unknowable day? Well, you find your answer to that question in the next section of our study of Matthew, starting in Matthew 24, verse 42. Jesus goes on. He says, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this. If the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So Jesus says that he has designed this day the day that he calls the coming of the Lord, the day of our rapture, our resurrection. He says he has designed this day to be a surprise so that we will have an incentive to be on alert at all times. The Greek word that is used here for alert, it means to remain awake or watchful. And it's the command you might give to a night watchman or a guard. So it's a call for us to fight against the tendency to be lulled to asleep, to, to get distracted, uh, to become complacent, to, to forget that there is this event coming. And the fact that this day could happen at any time means you can't afford to let your guard down. And he uses this example of a man guarding his house from a thief in this parable. And he says, you know, if that man had known the day that the thief was coming, he would get ready for that day. Now I want you to imagine for a moment how much differently you would approach security in your own home if you always knew beforehand when you were going to be robbed. I mean, imagine that it was just the convention of the day that thieves always sent you a calendar invite right before they decided to come rob your house. It was on your calendar. You knew it was coming. Everybody was informed. If that's how life worked, you would not do anything to concern yourself with security until you got that calendar invite, and then you would enact your security plan. You wouldn't lock your doors normally. You wouldn't turn on all your lights at night. You know, you wouldn't do the things that we might do typically today. Instead, you'd wait for the calendar invite when you heard the thief was coming. Then on that day, you'd lock everything, call 911, buy a big dog, uh, maybe get a weapon, do whatever you needed to so that when it happened, you'd be ready. Likewise, the rest of the time, the other 364 days of the year, you would have your guard down because there'd be no reason to have it up. You wouldn't lock your doors, you wouldn't worry about lights, you wouldn't pay an alarm company for all the monitoring in between those calendar events. You might not even buy house insurance to insure your possessions. I mean, why bother? It's not going to go anywhere, you'd think. You wouldn't need to be alert. You wouldn't need to be watchful. You could just take it easy because there'd be no surprise. And Jesus says in verse 44, that is exactly why the day of your resurrection has been left a surprise for everyone. Jesus says, notice, for this reason, we must be ready. He means this, 
The rapture is going to come like a thief in the night at an hour that will surprise you. God has planned that moment, the coming of the Lord, in a way such that we have to treat every day as the potential last day we will have on earth. And that means we have incentive to spend every one of those days very carefully, thoughtfully, with great concern for what it would do, not only for the glory of Christ and the purpose of the kingdom, but for our own sake as well, for our witness, for our testimony. Because if you knew the exact day of your resurrection, if the Lord had chosen to reveal that to us in Scripture, and we all had that calendar brightly colored on our phones saying, this is the day the Lord returns, well then, you would take a break from your preparations, wouldn't you? I mean, you could take your foot off the pedal, so to speak, You could coast for a time, right? You could allow your dedication to the disciplines of your faith to fall off whenever it was inconvenient, which is frankly most of the time. You could set prayer and study of the Bible aside. You could skip out on church gatherings for the most part. You could get cozy with your secret sins because after all, you've got time. You know when you need to be ready and it's not today. And until that appointed day approached, You could just take it easy, and then as it got closer, well, then you'd start to get a little more serious. You'd start to walk with Jesus in a way that anticipated the fact that you're about to see him face to face. And Jesus does not want us to do those things, for woe to us if we did. And that's why he is keeping us in the dark about the timing of his return and about the day of our resurrection. In fact, you notice he says specifically that he will come at a day at an hour when we do not expect him to arrive. It will be a day that no one sees coming. I believe that's saying that if someone was to try to predict the day, their prediction will merely guarantee that that will not be the day because no one's going to know it. So we are to remain alert, Jesus said, for this day, waiting, watchfully, expecting the Lord to return at any moment, knowing it could come instantly without any warning in a blink of an eye. And as a result, we don't live every day thinking We're going to have time to get right with Jesus before the day comes. Look, whether you are an unbeliever thinking that you can confess Christ on your deathbed and time that moment just perfectly so that you can avoid too much effort in the meantime, or if you're a believer who thinks that you can get serious about walking with Jesus and obeying what he's told you when you see the rapture approaching, well, let me tell you on the authority of Scripture, stop fooling yourself. Don't think you can outsmart God because you will be disappointed in this game that you're playing. Unbelievers, if you're listening to me, let me say to you that today is the day of your salvation. But if you play games with God, you may wake up one moment facing judgment. And believer, now is the time to obey your master. And if you delay that obedience, you will be like that unprepared homeowner that he used in the parable. You will be caught off guard and you will lose your possessions. And that leads us to the final and most important reason why the timing of the rapture remains a mystery for us, and that is because it will encourage us to guard our heavenly possessions. Look what Jesus says next in verse 45. He says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave who his master put in charge of his household to give them their food, at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, 
My master's not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So let's look at this parable. Jesus tells us this parable to explain why it is that we should be ready at all times for his return. And he uses the relationship of a slave to a master as an illustration of our relationship to Jesus. And as you probably know, this is one of Jesus' favorite illustrations. And as usual, Jesus is cast as the master here. We are the slaves. And so just as Jesus left us for a time, as he ascended to be with the Father in heaven, so in this parable has the master left his slaves for a time. And just as we know Jesus is bound to return one day, so in the parable, the master will come back at some point. And all the slaves in this master's household have duties. They've been assigned to accomplish certain tasks in that household. They do it under the master's authority. And in some cases, you even have slaves who possess additional levels of authority because their responsibility is to care for the needs of the other slaves in the home. Now, while the master's away, he expects these slaves to do their duty. And they are to do the duty that they were assigned as if he was still there. That is, there should be no distinction between how well they serve him when he's in their presence and how well they would serve him when he's gone. Every slave is expected to keep up with their assigned work, and for those slaves who are in charge of the others, they are expected to make sure the work is done and also to care for the needs of the rest of the slaves. Look, this whole operation in this household should just proceed uninterrupted as if there's been no change in the master's position or his uh, involvement. It should just continue on unchanged. It's the opposite, really, of saying when the cat's away, the mice will play. This is the opposite of that. Cat here or not, the mice keep doing their job. So why do the slaves remain diligent in the absence of the master? What's their motivation? Well, it's because they know that one day the master is coming back, probably unannounced. And when he does return, he naturally will take note of what the slaves were doing in his absence, and he will respond to each accordingly. And that brings us to the main point of the parable. When a master returns to his house, he comes with expectations. He expects his commands will have been obeyed. He expects those who served him will continue serving well in his absence. And those who meet those expectations will be rewarded for their obedience and their service. Notice in verse 46, Jesus says there is a blessing for the slave who is doing as the master commanded when he returns, that he be found to be doing what he was told. And in the context of the parable that we're looking at, that would mean, for example, that a slave who is being rewarded for being faithful in their service, they might receive extra rations at the dinner table, or they might be released from a day of work, uh, kind of getting a vacation day, if you will. Or maybe they'd see a reduction in the debt that they owed the master, which is why they were enslaved in the first place. But whatever it was, the slave knew rewards were on the line. And if the slave failed to serve the master well in his absence, well then those rewards might never materialize. Now in the worst case, you might have a slave who completely rejects the master's authority. He takes opportunity by the master's absence to completely rebel. 
And in effect, he becomes the master's enemy and an enemy of the other slaves. In verse 48, Jesus describes such a slave. He says he beats the other slaves, he leaves the master's house entirely, and he prefers the company of society's lowest. Now, this slave didn't just lose opportunity for reward. In his case, the master actually punishes him. This slave, Jesus said, will be caught off guard at the master's return, and he will ultimately be rejected from service, left with the hypocrites, Jesus says. All right, so what's the meaning of this parable? Well, you may remember a couple weeks ago when we were teaching on the rapture, I used an example from my own experience of growing up in my own home. I described uh, nights when my parents would leave to go out for an evening and they'd leave the kids at home, myself and my siblings, and when they left us for that period of time, they'd give us instructions. You know, they'd say, here's what we want you to be doing while we're gone. And if we did what they asked us to do, if when they came home they found us doing what they asked, well then we might expect to be praised or congratulated, uh, maybe even rewarded in some modest way, you know, depending on the situation, but that's what would be expected. On the other hand, if we neglected our duties and they surprised us at their return, well, we knew we risked negative consequences, and I guess at the very least we knew there wouldn't be any reward. Now, since we didn't know when for sure they were coming back, we were watchful. We were diligent. We had incentive to be ready for that moment by completing our responsibilities. Because we knew when they came back, there is an implied moment of evaluation. You know, you, nobody has to spell it out for you. You know that when the parent or the master or the, the person who you are under in terms of authority, when they come back into your life at a moment and you've been told what to do while they're gone, they're going to ask, what did you do? They're going to look at what you accomplished. And unless we have some kind of death wish, we want that moment to go well. We want our parents to be pleased we want Jesus to be pleased. And the surprise of the timing of the return is added incentive to be sure we're ready. That is exactly the situation Jesus is describing for believers when it comes to the day of the coming of the Lord or as we call it now, the rapture. The purpose of the rapture first is to give us these new bodies that we're gonna need for the future eternal life in the kingdom. But secondly, it's also the moment of our report card with Jesus. The moment of our rapture, the coming of the Lord, is a moment that Jesus uses to evaluate the work of service that every believer has been doing for Jesus in his absence so that he can reward us for that service. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, to the church he says, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes, or we could say, wait until the coming of the Lord, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from the Lord. So Paul says, while we sit now in this circumstance today, waiting for Jesus' return, he tells the believer, don't go around judging your fellow believers in terms of how they live for Jesus or how they serve Jesus or what they're doing for Jesus. Leave that judgment to the master. Now, he's not talking here about sin. There is a biblical place for the body of Christ to play, a biblical role for us to play in the lives of each other. When sin is a concern in some brother or sister's life, we do have a role in loving ways to help them move on from sin. He's not talking about that. 
He's saying, when you look at someone else's walk with Jesus, how they serve Jesus, where their calling is, do not judge them with respect to how they should serve Jesus. He says, Jesus will bring to light at the coming of the Lord everything hidden in darkness, and he will disclose the motives of the hearts of men or women who serve him. What he's saying is this. In that future day, the day we call the rapture, everything we have done in service to Jesus and the reasons why we did it will be made known, will be public, if you will. And Jesus will disclose these things so that then he can praise us for the things that we did well. This is an evaluation, or let's just call it what it is, a judgment. It is a judgment for the believer. And Paul says it happens at the coming of the Lord. So simply put, there is a judgment moment waiting for every believer, and that judgment moment happens after we are resurrected. Notice Paul says that it is a moment in which each man's praise comes to him from God. And the concept here of a believer's judgment may be new to you, and for some it may be concerning, but let me help you understand what the Bible says. First, I would encourage you to study on this topic. It's uh, throughout the New Testament. It's one of the major themes of the New Testament, and unfortunately it's often overlooked in the modern church. For our purpose this morning, though, let me just cover a couple of brief points on what it means to be judged as a believer. First, let me make clear this is not a judgment moment to determine if you are saved or if you go to heaven. The Bible's very clear about how to be saved. It tells us that we confess Jesus as Lord and we believe in our heart that he was raised from the dead. We will be saved. That, friends, is our salvation. If you do that, if you believe that, you are saved. And no service, no good work is ever required because you cannot earn what comes only by grace. So it is only by faith that we will enter heaven and by no other means. But in addition to that truth, the Bible also says that believers will be judged in a moment following our rapture, following the resurrection, for the purpose of receiving reward, or as Paul just said, praise from God. He elaborates on this a chapter later, or a couple of letters later, in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, he says this, for we must all appear, speaking of believers again, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may be recompensed for the deeds done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So all believers, Paul says, will experience a judgment in which Christ considers the work that we did for him while in the body. That's a way of saying while living in this body before we get the new one. That service he will look at and consider if it is good or not. Paul says whether it's good or bad. And he will recompense, so the word really could just be reward. He will reward the good service, and of course he will not reward the bad service. Now look, when he says good or bad in that passage, I just want you to understand, he's not referring to sin or righteous deeds or something of that sort. He's referring to the quality of our service. And so that begs the question, what constitutes good service? Well, Jesus actually gives us that standard in the parable that we just read in Matthew 24. Remember in the parable, the master assigned work to every one of his slaves before he left. The slaves did not determine their own assignments. They were required to do what they were given to do, and then they were recompensed or rewarded based on whether they were found to be doing what they were assigned. So that's how we will be evaluated. 
Christ has assigned to every single one of his disciples a place and a role of service in the body of Christ. And some of us have what I would call individual assignments to serve Jesus in some capacity over the course of our life. And then there are others who are assigned to take care of the other believers, the other disciples, and that is their principal service in the body of Christ. You cannot decide your own assignment. You are called to serve Jesus in the station to which you have been assigned. And depending on how well you carry out that assignment will determine how you are rewarded at the coming of the Lord. Your reward does not depend on the type of work you do because after all, Jesus decided that. He's the one who made the assignment. So that means everyone has the potential to be equally well rewarded because it doesn't turn on the role you play or the work you were assigned. It only matters how well you carried out your given assignment. Back in 1 Corinthians 4, that first quote I read you from Paul, it said that Jesus' judgment will take into account things hidden in the darkness, which is a way of saying service that you do out of view of others. And Paul also said he will judge the motives of our heart, which is a way of saying why and how we went about that service. So, for example, when you enter into your prayer closet at home, alone, and you intercede for fellow believers, you do that out of view of others. And presumably no one ever knows that it took place, but Jesus knows. And Jesus will take that into account, Paul says. And when you clean bathrooms at the church building, or write letters of encouragement, or make phone calls to check on people in the body, or when you share the gospel with a stranger in the supermarket, or when you simply teach the Bible to your children at home, the Lord sees those moments that are hidden, so to speak, from everyone else. But here's an even better thing to understand. Paul also said that the results of our service are not judged. Never does Scripture say that the result of our work is taken into consideration. Because here again, friends, the success of whatever ministry you take on is also fully dependent on Jesus. He determines the success. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, he asks the question rhetorically, well, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God has caused the growth. So look at the situation that the Lord has established for us in order to give us reward. He gave us our spiritual gifts, he gave us our assignment and opportunity, and he determines the outcome of whatever work we engage in. The only thing that he's asked us to do is to be found doing what he asked. You know, it doesn't get much easier than that. When you're not responsible for determining what to do or for determining what comes of the work, you have the easiest job I could possibly imagine. We all are being judged solely by obedience and effort and the intentions of our heart. That, friends, is a judgment that, if you will, it's been tipped in our favor. The scales are on our side. It, it's even the case when you engage in some form of ministry that fails utterly, has no positive result, at least none that we can see. Even in that case, the Lord credits your effort and your intentions. Now, flipping that around for just a moment, it must also be true then that the way to lose reward is simply not to serve, not to try, or perhaps not to try with pure motives. 
We can't be like that slave that you saw at the end of the parable that pretended, oh, the Lord's never going to come, which is a way of saying, I'm never going to have to be held to account for how I served him. And therefore, he thinks he can do whatever he pleases in the meantime. Jesus wants us to think differently. He wants us to serve him diligently, first for his glory, but then secondly, for our own reward. And that's why he's keeping the day of your rapture a secret, because it ensures you will be incentivized to be ready for that report card moment. The rapture, I think, is a bit like a pop quiz. That is, you can't know for sure when the test is coming, so you have incentive to study for it every day. And when you don't know when your judgment is coming, you have incentive to serve Jesus well every day. And so when he does return, you'll be found doing what he asked you to do. So by keeping the day a mystery to us, here's what Jesus is effectively doing. He is helping us maximize our eternal reward. Now, if you're hearing this and you're saying to yourself, well, you know, I don't even know what he's asked me to do. I don't know what I've been assigned. Well, friends, if that's you, then you're realizing right now you may not be ready for that day. Because if you don't know what Jesus has called you to do in service to him, then it's unlikely that you're doing it. And if you're not found to be doing what he's asked of you when he comes, how will he reward you? So the first step in serving Jesus is to know what he wants you to do. And that just begs the next question, of course, which is how do I find out what he wants me to do? Well, friends, the answer to that's a little simpler than you might imagine. You pray for his guidance and you step out in some direction. And then you expect him to steer you to where he wants you to go. That is how it works for every believer. Not just you, everyone. The Apostle Paul, for example, did not wake up one morning and decide, you know, I should be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was arrested on the road to Damascus by a bright light, blinded, sent to a man who would then teach him a little bit about what it meant, later sent out into the desert of Arabia, trained by Jesus for three years. You know, the point is, Paul had to get there too, but he had to take a step. He began walking with Jesus, and the Lord showed him where to go. Martin Luther, as another example, I don't think he was born knowing that he was going to start the Reformation. I think he just started reading the Word of God. He started seeking ways to serve God where he was, in the community where he lived, and that had one thing lead to another. Next thing you know, he's nailing something to a wooden door. It's how it works for everyone. So when you ask me, how does a Christian find his or her place in service to Jesus, the answer is deceptively simple. You pray for guidance, you start moving, and you expect Jesus to steer you. Because here's the thing, God cannot steer a stationary object. And if you're chasing the world, or you're living for yourself, or you're making excuses for why you can't obey Jesus, you are, spiritually speaking, a stationary object. And therefore, you should not expect to figure this thing out, not under those circumstances, because Jesus doesn't force his servants to serve him. He just doesn't reward the absence of service. And you know your test is coming, you know the coming of the Lord is around the corner, you know it will surprise you, so you want to be found ready. So start moving. It's as simple as picking a target and seeking to serve him in that opportunity. Now look, you may pick the wrong target, so to speak. You may seek initially to serve in some area that is not the one Jesus ultimately wants you to do, but you'll know that soon enough. You will begin in service and Jesus will steer you. 
I think of the example of Abraham from the book of Genesis when he was told initially, go to a place I will show you, God says. You know, that is inherently a statement of steering, right? He didn't say which direction. I like to think that Abraham may have started walking east. He didn't know. But as he walks, God steered him and put him in the right place eventually. You got to walk. You got to do. You got to serve. You got to try. So how does any Christian find their place of service? By stepping out in service and letting the Lord direct you. And I think that's why the Lord saved this topic for the end of his discourse. You know, never mind the fact that these men never thought to ask him about this day because they didn't know anything of it. But more than that, he puts it at the end because this is the one and, frankly, the only day that Christians should be thinking about. I mean, yeah, it's interesting to see that the signs of the end of the age are upon us and to know that the last days are here. And it'll be important for those who ultimately live in tribulation to recognize the signs of Jesus' second coming. But Christians who live now are not in either of those groups. We don't need to worry about the end of the age. We won't be here to see it finish. And we certainly don't need to worry about the judgment that comes in tribulation. We're not appointed to that wrath. The thing that we are supposed to be interested in The thing that we're supposed to be focused on is the moment of the coming of the Lord, a day that could happen at any time, a day that will be our judgment moment. That's supposed to be our focus. And Jesus ends with this topic in chapter 24 because it's what he wanted on top of mind for his disciples. It's the next thing scheduled in the plan of God for this age. Before any of those other things really get going, the timing of the rapture will come first. And that's what we should be focused on. And being prepared for that moment, as he tells us to here, to be alert, that is, for that moment, is a process of being engaged in the things that he asked us to do while he was gone. So use your spiritual gift, whatever that is. Serve your brothers and sisters in the place where he has put you. Live with eyes for eternity, knowing that this is how you please him and render him service with an expectation that he pays attention and will reward you. And most of all, Christians, don't play games with God. Get ready for the Lord's coming because you know it can't be that far, but you don't know it can't be now. And even if you should die before that day comes, you will still be evaluated on the day of the coming of the Lord. You'll just come down with the saints who are already with you in heaven because as the writer of Hebrews says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And Peter tells us in his first letter that the judgment process begins with us. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, well then what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter says that judgment comes to the church first, and he's referring again to the moment of our resurrection, to the rapture. And so he says, we must be ready for that moment. We get ready by being diligent in our service to him while we await. And then you notice how Peter ends. He says, but if God is willing to judge even those who are his, well, what would we imagine he will do to those who disobey the gospel? Which is obviously a reference to unbelievers. What kind of judgment will they see in their day? Notice their day follows ours. Here again, in what we've learned, the rapture will come first, then tribulation, and then the judgment that God appoints at the second coming of Christ. So judgment for the church first, then judgment for the unbelievers later. 
You know, in that parable we just studied, Jesus actually includes one slave who represents that second moment of judgment, the one for unbelievers. That's the slave who left the master's house, and he is, in that parable, a picture of the fate of unbelievers. Now, this parable can be a bit confusing at this point because that unbeliever in the parable is another slave, and so we know the slaves were representative of believers in the church, and so we start to wonder, how can a believer be put out into hell, etc.? Well, remember, in parables, it's not uncommon for characters to be exposed at some point as frauds. That's often the point of the parable. And in this case, the actions of this one slave ultimately reveal that he was never truly under the master's authority. For example, he left the master's house to go consort with drunkards. That's a way of showing that he was never truly a member of that household, of the master's house. And he rejects the master's authority. He does not want to be uh, a part of the master's family. In fact, he beats the other slaves that are in that household, which is a picture of persecution, demonstrating this slave is an enemy of the other slaves, just as the world persecutes the church. And those details tell us this man was not truly a slave. Never at any point was his heart truly given over to the master. And once the master was out of view, it was easy for him to revert back to his true nature. He was an imposter who had no relationship with the master. And so when the master returns, he judges that man harshly as you would judge an enemy. He cuts him into pieces, Jesus says, and assigns him a place with hypocrites, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a bible way of saying hell or the lake of fire to be more specific. It's the home of all who would reject the authority of Jesus. And their judgment will also be sudden, and unexpected. Just like the way the rapture impacts the church, an unbeliever will have no day, uh, no warning, that is, generally speaking, for the day of their death. I mean, some might see it coming, but even then, they're not exactly sure. And so, unbelievers would also do well to be ready. And friends, it's the easiest preparation of all. Serving Jesus can take effort, yes, and it can be an investment of time, of course, but Being ready for his return simply as a matter of being believing, well, that's the easiest thing you could ever do. It only takes a moment. It just takes faith in Jesus Christ. I want to end with that here as we finish our teaching today. That is, if you are a believer, you have now in front of you the roadmap to be prepared for your rapture. It's not about results, and it's not about status. It's only about effort and consistency. It's only about having an intention to serve and to doing what you can in the days you have. But if you have not known him as master, if you have not made yourself a part of this family by faith, well then, that is the prerequisite to service. You cannot serve a master you do not know. You cannot be rewarded for being a part of a family that you do not belong to. So with faith first, you may enter into the family of God by recognizing that your sin has separated you from Jesus and will do so eternally If you do not allow Christ to pay the price for that sin by placing your faith in his sacrificial death on the cross and by recognizing that by his perfect life you can be credited with the righteousness required to enter heaven, that by your faith he will give you a new perfect spirit, sinless forevermore, and one day, a day soon to come, he will give you a new perfect eternal body that will never die again, all because of his grace. And 
Placing your faith in Jesus is no more difficult than simply acknowledging these things I just said. And I would pray for you to do that wherever you are, with whomever you're with, and to lead this new life with us that Jesus has made possible by his mercy. Believer, to you I say just this. Let's get ready. Let's not play games. The time is now. And count it a blessing and mercy in itself that God has prepared a message like this for you and has shared it with you before the day so that you will have reason to be ready. So that he might, in mercy and love, reward you all the more for what you do in service to him. We thank him and we praise him for letting us know early what we needed to know. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity, the opportunity to spend at least one more day in service to you. And every day thereafter, Father, I pray our hearts would be directed to the purpose you have had in bringing us to faith and letting us live on this earth and serving you. Not to serve ourselves, not to take your mercy and grace for granted, but to put it to work for your glory, knowing that you are fair and just and kind to reward those who serve you well. And we look forward to that moment you return We know it can be at any time, and as John said, Father, at the end of the book of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus, for so many wonderful things will follow, and we anticipate those things eagerly. In the meantime, Father, give us strength and commitment to serve you well, and I pray for this church to do so in the knowledge, Father, that you've given us from your word today. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.